Listener Production. Hello, Tom Tilly with you for The Briefing, joined by Katrina Blowers. And Katrina, it is the 1st of August. Oh, something just happened in my brain when I saw that in black and white on the page. I can deal with June, July. That makes me feel like I've still got time to, you know, implement all the goals that I had for this year. But now that I'm seeing August, there's no time left. We're officially at the end of the year. Yeah, time has just become a very different concept during these pandemic years, hasn't it? It really has. Uh, But you, speaking of time, you certainly had a great time over the weekend. Well, August is actually my favourite month of the year because it's when um, the snow is the best. And um, yeah, I got the chance to duck across to Queenstown over the weekend. Amazing. Just a few hours on the plane and you are in a completely different landscape, like the, the mountains and the vegetation and the lakes, the whole thing, it's completely different to anything you would see in Australia. And the fact you can just duck over there for a weekend, I mean, that's that's epic. Yeah, it felt almost too good to be true. It was so nice. So yeah, it was another weekend of um, doing this little ski party I do and getting a few laps in on the skis. So that was really <laughs> nice. But um, let's get down to business. And by the way, actually, if you're relatively new to the briefing. Um, Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to have you with us every day, right, Katrina? Absolutely. Whether you're listening via Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever podcast app, there's so many of them now, please hit subscribe and get the briefing in your feed each morning from 6am for the latest news and also a deep dive interview. Yeah, and today's interview um, is about mindfulness, which has become a $4 trillion industry. And we're asking the question, do the mindfulness phone apps actually work? They failed to find any convincing evidence to support any mobile phone-based intervention on any outcome. So basically they're saying none of these things work. I've got a few of those apps. I'm going to stick my hand up and confess right there. (laughs) That is our briefing coming up in the second half of the episode. But first, here are today's key headlines. Impressive polling for our new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, now has the highest satisfaction rating for any incoming Prime Minister in almost 40 years. So this is the first news poll since May's election and it has the PM satisfaction rating at 61%. Kevin Rudd, John Howard and Bob Hawke all had satisfaction ratings in the high 50s, Bob Hawke as well, while Scott Morrison's was 51% following the 2019 election. Yeah, and so this comes as the Prime Minister gets to work on a referendum for the Indigenous voice to Parliament. And over the weekend, he announced proposed wording for the referendum question at the Gama Festival in Arnhem Land. Do you support an alteration to the constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? A straightforward proposition. So that wording is very simple on purpose. Uh, Labor's plan is for the detail on how this voice is set up to be debated in Parliament after we have that public vote on the referendum. Albanese said over the weekend that the idea is if you hash it out too much before the vote happens, there's too many reasons to vote no. He said he really learnt from watching that referendum on whether we should become a republic as to how to go forward with this one. 
It's really interesting to watch this debate unfold and to see how the opposition move on this as well. So far, they've been quite supportive. Um, meanwhile, this week, the government will turn its attention to climate change um, with the legislation for their 43% emissions reduction target to pass through the lower house. And then we'll see the showdown with the Greens in the Senate. House prices are dropping at their fastest rate since the global financial crisis. Yeah, so the latest data shows Australian median property values have dropped 2% since May. So 2% doesn't sound much, but in the space of a few months, that's quite a quick declining mm. growth rate. Sydney is leading the way on the falls. It's already off 5% uh, and much more in some suburbs. In the GFC, prices dropped 8.5%. This time, economists are predicting house prices could fall between 10 and 20%. It's pretty scary, especially if you bought a house Recently, that 20% could be your life savings, the deposit mm. you put up. Um, but if you're someone who's been wanting to get into the market for a long time, you'd be thinking, well, a 15% drop would only take prices back to where they were in April last year. So there's definitely two sides of the proverbial coin on this one. Um, there'll be another big hit for homeowners this week. It's expected the Reserve Bank will put up rates by 50 basis points again. That's for the third time in a row when they meet again. Um, they have their, their monthly meeting tomorrow. Three days into the Commonwealth Games and Australia is top of the medal tally, but not without a few controversies. So overall, we've won 41 medals. 18 of them have been gold. Yeah, so four of the gold medals have come in the cycling velodrome. One of them went to Matthew Richardson in the men's sprint and there was another Aussie rider who initially got bronze in that event, uh, Matthew Gladser. But later he had that bronze medal stripped away after officials reviewed the footage and deemed he went too close to another rider. Such a shame. And he had a spectacular crash as well. Uh, his suit was completely ripped and hate to think of how that would have felt on his skin. Uh, there's controversy around the pool. Carl Chalmers has hit out at the media following reports of tension between him and his ex-girlfriend, Emma McKeon, and her new boyfriend, Cody Simpson. Bit of love triangle situation mm. there, who's also competing. It's hard. It's hard for me to stand up and swim this morning. It's probably... One of the biggest challenges I've had to had to face. Um, I think media don't realise, like I said on my Instagram, how much impact it actually has. Yeah, it definitely makes me me question my future in the sport. Yeah, that's Kyle Chalmers speaking on Seven there. So yeah, this discussion in the media about his former relationship really seems to be having a massive impact on him, saying that he's considering his future in the sport. You know, this is it, his life's yeah. work. I know, but it confuses me why he's engaging in that. I mean, fair cop, absolutely. People shouldn't be speculating or talking about people's love lives, although we've, you know, the media has done that forever. However, I know people like Ariane Titmus has a complete media blackout when she's in the lead up to competing for an event during that event and shortly afterwards. And I'm just confused why Kyle Chalmers wouldn't do a similar thing when it obviously gets under his skin so much. Yeah, totally. Social media can be so distracting at the best of times, let alone competing in an elite sporting event. Um, I mean, it was the media putting the questions to him actually mm. at the event as well. Yeah, but true. what I wonder is why this is getting to him so much. If it's all good, why can't he say, look, it's all good. We're, the three of us are still friends. We all get mm. on really well. Move I on. Just laugh but it, it off. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems to be getting somewhere. I mean, there must be something deeper going on. 
And it's been revealed Prince Charles accepted a $1.2 million gift from the family of Osama bin Laden. Mm, yeah, now that is a bad look. Yeah. Um, so the, the UK Sunday Times has reported that Charles accepted payments in 2013 from bin Laden's half-brothers um, and the cash went to the Prince of Wales Charitable Fund, which gives grants to non-profit organisations. Bin Laden was disowned by his family in 1994. We should point that out. So there is no suggestion that his half-brothers had any links to his activities. Yeah, but apparently Charles got advice that it would be a bad look to take the money, but still decided to take it. All right, Katrina, um, on that note, <laughs> money coming from the Bin Ladens. We'll catch you tomorrow. But keep listening because I think you're about to get some interesting advice um, on these mindfulness apps, which you have a few of. I do. I've spent a bit of money on those, so I will be listening very keenly. Antoinette's going to join me for that discussion. So, Antoinette, do you ever practice mindfulness? I do. I'm a couple of times a week. I should do it more often. To be honest, it's part of my broader mental health care because I have for several years dealt with anxiety um, in particular and at times depression. So yeah, I see a therapist and this is something that I'm meant to do, but it's hard to find the time. And sometimes I I finish, um, you know, my 10 minutes of mindfulness and I don't feel that great afterwards. So how do you do it? Are you guided via an app or is it something that your therapist has helped guide you through? Yeah, look, to be honest, uh, there's not a huge amount of quality control. Sometimes I just go on YouTube. Sometimes there's a couple of apps I have, but I haven't researched it too much. Like I don't really know what the best app is or if it's, you know, necessarily evidence-based. But, you know, you know what? At the very least, taking 10 minutes out to stop and to breathe, particularly with our busy lifestyles, like it does bring some kind of stillness and some kind of benefit. Well, at least I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. I've actually never tried it because for me, it felt like um, I was a kid being forced to pray in church. That's what it feels like for me. So, yep, fair enough. Yeah, I, I'm a bit, you know, not bit, into that vibe. A little felt, bit scarred. Yeah, a little bit scarred. And it felt like a few years ago, everyone was, was talking about it. it was becoming very common and it's a huge part of the the wellness industry, which is a huge industry now, mm. globally worth more than $4 trillion and mindfulness is been at the forefront and lots of different smartphone apps on offer, but now they're being questioned by the research. Yeah. And I guess some people probably, well, most people have heard of mindfulness and it is a type of meditation and you just like focus on being intensely present and just feeling what you're feeling and sensing what you're sensing and trying to sort of sit there or lay there and have no judgment. But yeah, now there is growing concern that some of these apps um, may not be effective at all and perhaps even harmful. There was one study, um, Tom, from the National University of Ireland and it goes as far as to say some mindfulness apps are a sham. Yeah, wow. Well, Associate Professor Nicholas T. Van Dam has been analysing the research and he works for the School of Psychological Sciences at Melbourne Uni. Nicholas, can you explain what mindfulness actually is? Yeah, look, this this is a bit of a tricky one. Um, the, the most commonly used definition is one um, provided by John Kabat-Zinn, who is kind of considered the, the father of Western mindfulness. 
And he describes mindfulness as awareness that arises through paying attention. So it's kind of the way in which you um, say focus or you become aware of things. But he, he adds that it's really critical that you do it on purpose. So this differentiates mindfulness from things like flow, which might happen as an accident. He says that it's in, in the present moment and it's non-judgmental. And so the, the point is sort of, you know, you're aware of your experiences as they're occurring. You're not recollecting or, or thinking about what will happen tomorrow and you're open to whatever experience you may have so that's the non-judgment part is you're just you're you're curious um, you're open-minded right you're willing to kind of experience whatever is there and so what's the impact supposed to be on the brain so that's a tricky one as well um there's lots of suggestions i think uh, you know the focus sort of of the people who have designed many of these interventions have not necessarily thought per se of the brain they were more interested in people's behavior right they, they thought that the goal of the practice really was to help people be more present and by being more present in the moment, they would be less sort of worried about the things that were going to happen, or they would be less kind of in their heads thinking about things that have happened. And one might think from that, that the goal would then be uh, emotional balance or this idea of what's called equanimity, this idea that sort of you can weather the emotional storm or you can um, you can be more comfortable with lots of different experiences. Um, now, in terms of what the implications are for the brain, there is some suggestion that as people undertake particularly structured practice of, of meditation, the way in which the brain kind of talks to itself, that changes over time. So people become more aware of the mind wandering off and they become better at kind of bringing the attention back to the present. So two, two parts of the brain or two networks of the brain that typically work totally in opposition to one another can start to sync up and start to work together. Okay, and the the critique that we've been reading recently um, on mindfulness seems to focus particularly on the smartphone apps and their impact. But going back a little bit, how widespread has the practice become and what are the main ways people have practiced it? Estimates are, are a bit tough in terms of how many people are practicing mindfulness versus meditation. There was a survey in the US that was done in 2017, and we saw that Estimates sort of are around around 15% of the adult population is engaging with meditation. Worldwide estimates, and these are just really rough estimates, we're talking about probably about 200 to 500 million people. Globally, we're probably talking about 20% of people sort of seem to be engaging with some form of meditation. And mindfulness can be related to meditation. And that's where mm. the, it becomes tricky with the definition that mindfulness and meditation are not necessarily the same thing. So, you know, as I said, mindfulness is, is a particular way of approaching things. It's often considered to be about focusing attention, whereas meditation is a particular practice mm. um, where one sort of tries to engage on focusing in the moment. But mindfulness meditation and this idea of mindfulness has really taken off and particularly um, in the past sort of two, three decades, more and more people are sort of becoming interested in this idea of mindfulness the tricky part is when people are sort of trying to do mindfulness without that meditation component. So it's a little hard to know, and the evidence isn't great that kind of mindfulness practices on their own without meditation, whether or not they work. You know, we, the evidence would sort of suggests that it's probably not as beneficial. The other thing to note, I guess, is more and more people are going towards or sort of being introduced to mindfulness via apps. So the traditional way to learn about mindfulness or meditation was to go to a 
meditation teacher or a monk or a nun or you know go to a historic context and you know you'd, you'd be speaking with someone at a temple or some kind of meditation center currently or nowadays most people are sort of downloading an app and that's the way that they're learning about these practices so I'm one of those people. I downloaded a few apps and I've been meaning to get into mindfulness and do it regularly, but I don't have the discipline all the time. But is, is the evidence now suggesting that not doing it may be better for you after all, like not doing it via some of these apps? Well, it depends on the person. You know, I think so many people, and I hear this all the time, people come to me and say, you know, I tried mindfulness and it didn't work for me. The marketing of these apps is such that people kind of think that they're going to be calm or they're going to be relaxed. They think that sort of if they, they download this app, I mean, and look, it's in the name, right? You know, some of the apps market themselves as calm or giving you headspace or helping you to relax, right? So people download the app and they go, oh, I'm going to feel great. And the reality is the practice often isn't calming and often isn't relaxing. It's often kind of stressful or agitating. It's difficult. Most people don't spend a lot of time sort of just looking at their breath or focusing on their moment-to-moment experience. That's not how we normally go about our day-to-day lives. So I think that's really important to put out there is that firstly sort of that it's, it's not necessarily a day on the beach. The other thing though sort of is that in terms of the evidence that we have for the practice, you know, it, it does actually seem to help a lot of people but not everyone. So some people actually find the experience unpleasant and that experience persists and some people don't necessarily benefit. When you talk about the, or when you raise the question of, you know, is it better to not do this than to do this? Well, I think it really depends on what you're doing and what your goals are. You know, if your goals are to feel a little bit less stressed, um, then downloading an app and, and listening to it, it may be the thing for you and it may work. If your goals are becoming more emotionally balanced or promoting your mental health, you're probably going to have to do a lot more than sort of listen to three minutes of a guided practice on your phone. And you're probably going to have to do that more than once. Well, a recent review of these mobile phone apps, uh, well, interventions, including apps, it combined results from 145 randomised control trials. There are almost 50,000 participants. What were some of the key findings? Yeah, look, so the, the fascinating finding and, and the conclusion, and I, I'll quote them because it's um, it's pretty stark, it's pretty concerning when you read it, you know, particularly compared to what most people hear from advertisements or hear online. So the statement that they concluded with is that they failed to find any convincing evidence to support any mobile phone-based intervention on any outcome. So basically they're saying mm. none of these things work. <laughs> and that's shocking. Like, mm. so... One thing that they included in that analysis was, in particular, a comprehensive review of meditation or mindfulness apps in particular. Um, And in that particular review, they find that there does seem to be some evidence that these things have moderate effects for things like anxiety, stress, and well-being. So we're talking specifically about mindfulness apps. Um, So there is some evidence that they may work. But when you compare kind of how big the effect is or how much people benefit, it's fairly small. It's way smaller kind of than what you would see when you do these kind of training programs in person with an experienced teacher or a clinician. And I guess the other thing to notice is that the, the, the studies themselves are not always great. You know, often they're comparing these apps to nothing. So, you know, does doing something work better than doing nothing? A lot of the times they're also looking at comparisons to sort of things like simple relaxation. So they're not using what we would think of as the gold standard, which is comparing against another active control where people are doing something else. You know, they're working on some other kind of relaxation exercise or something like that. So how does it stack up when it's compared to doing a real life guided mindfulness practice? The effects are probably about half the size. Um, so, you know, when you look at kind of what you get or what the benefits are of doing the practice via an app, 
versus what you get from sort of doing this with support, you know, with, with a teacher, with somebody helping you through it. Um, the effects, you know, are probably about half as big as what they would be. So, you know, if you're looking to kind of reduce your anxiety, you can imagine that sort of in person, you might get something like a 50% reduction, if that makes sense. You might feel half as anxious. Um, if you're using the app alone, you might only get a 25% reduction. So it's not nothing. Um, certainly there is benefit to it, but it's probably not what most people are looking for. And I guess at the more serious end of um, people's responses to the apps, they have been linked to panic attacks or um, suicidal thoughts or, or hallucinations. What would you suggest would be better practice for people who are triggered in these ways by the app? The reality is that these kind of really bad things do happen. Estimates sort of suggest they might happen around 8% of the time. That's more sort of the kind of experience that we'd expect to see with the kind of in-person experience. And I guess the reason for that is the more potential something has to help you, the more potential it might have to harm you. But we do know that these experiences also happen with apps. And there are reports, as you said, of panic attacks, of people becoming suicidal, of people experiencing things like hallucinations. And my strongest advice would be, if you're having that kind of experience, you should stop. You know, first and foremost, you should stop doing it. You should go and see a clinician. And I think that's something that people should have in mind from the outset, is that if you have a difficult or a troubled history, you shouldn't be downloading an app in place and speaking to a mental health professional. These kind of programs or these kinds of practices are much better situated to be adjuncts or add-ons rather than replacements. That was Nicholas T. Van Dam from Melbourne University. And that sounds like some pretty good advice, Antoinette, that if you are dealing with an acute mental health problem, that using one of these apps on their own without any other treatment, like seeing a psychologist, could be concerning. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And look, I have been pretty open about my own mental health struggles. You know, I've had anxiety and depression. And I I remember one night when I was having a panic attack and they happened in the middle of the night and I thought, okay, calm yourself down, calm yourself down. And I tried to, I was shaking as I tried to put my headphones in. Um, No app at that point is going to calm you down. And I know in, in, in that particular instance, I ended up getting a cab and going to hospital. And what I needed was medical help and a GP and a mental health you know, professional support network. I guess that's my takeaway. It reiterates it really that it can't replace actual human support and medical support. But if this has brought up anything tricky for you, do reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we take a deep dive on the cruising industry. Um, it's back up and running despite concerns about COVID. We'll find out how they're actually operating and trying to keep people safe. Listener.